Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Indy Johar, the co-founder of Project Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs. I'm really excited to have Indy on the show with us. And we actually go back quite a ways because when I was producing a, a conference, a global conference called Influencer Conference in 2011, I launched it in London and actually held the event at a space called the Hub Westminster. And it was, I think we were maybe the first or second event held in the space because they were still doing construction. And it, it became sort of a, a home for me whenever I was in London around that 2011, 2012, 2013 time. So um, India is someone that I, I respect his work. I respect his intellect. And I've been anxiously looking forward to having this conversation with him. Um, he's one of the people that I consider a true thinker um, in the space of how we make our world a better place. So that's a both prepared and longer intro than usual. So I probably made him embarrassed, but Definitely. I'm super happy to have you on the show. Uh, hey, it's a real pleasure to, to be here and it's a real honor to be back with you. So I uh, slightly, uh, more than slightly embarrassed by the intro. So let's get into the beat of it. <laughs> I'm all yours, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I mean, you've done so much work that in a way that I would call it future-based work because that's this, the very simple way of, of using the language that I think most people will understand. But I struggle with using that, that word for this because your, your work is actually very layered and very complex. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to set the stage a little bit and kind of tell me a little bit about Dark Matter Labs, Project Zero Zero, the work you've done with, with Impact Hub, in the UK, because I know you first from that space in Westminster when you were responsible for opening it. So I think that will give some context to our listeners about just how connected um, your perspective is and your and your work is. Yeah, it's, uh, firstly, thank you. I don't often think through this perspective, but I suppose I would, the way I've been seeing it, I mean, I trained as an architect, and that's the first thing probably just to put straight on the table. I but I very quickly realized that actually architecture is, the, is a means of bringing complex things together and making, making form. That form can be physical, that form can be institutional, that form can be half institutional, half physical. It can be hybrids. And that was something I very quickly realized and I had the pleasure of working with a friend of mine, Melissa Mean, and making demo. She was at Demos at that time. We built the Bristol Urban Beach. And we built the Bristol Urban Beach completely entrepreneurially. And what was fascinating about it was that we recognized that the beach wasn't a physical thing. It was physical programming and people. And I remember the police told us that, you know, you're going to get violence in the beach. People are going to drink. It's all going to go wrong. And we recognized that if you, how you program the music, what services you provided, massage services, children's play, you were never going to get that. So what you started to realize was that actually how we think about design by layering it into architecture and other things actually is part of the problem. When you start to think things through as an integrated reality, you start to get to different types of solutions. That was a very initial premise. And from the back of that, ended up working with people like Jonathan Robinson, uh, the kind of founder of the Global Impact Hub Network, and building impact hubs and working with him around the network design and really starting to think about how we don't see architecture as an object, but actually as this kind of creating of systems and platforms. And that was a kind of a massive period. And obviously, building Hub Westminster was part of that thesis. But over that, I mean, we were part of building also open source furniture companies. Zero Zero built open, you know, built uh, part of building Open Desk, open source furniture company, or part of seeding WikiHouse, open source housing. We started to realize that when you take this kind of space-time idea of design, you can start to design quite different things, which are radically democratic in a new format. And 
So the kind of passion between how we democratize value and democratize the act of making that value and transforming how we make was a kind of real big issue. But as we were doing most of that, what we started to realize very quickly was behind the physical things that we see, there is a huge amount of dark matter. And I'm going to use that word specifically. And what do I mean by that is that if you want to say, everyone talks about amongst the architecture world, it's very much, okay, how do we build a house cheaper? And you very quickly realize when you look at a house, actually the real issue of a house is two things, the land value, and then how you financialize a house. So we did the wiki house, but what became very clear, the problem was never the house. The problem was, how do you build warranties for an open source house? And the other problem was, actually, how do you reimagine land value? And for us, both of these were dark matter problems. They were problems that design in its traditional boundary of doing could never solve. And we were seeing that in multiple areas. So for example, I'll give you an example, the High Line in New York has generated massive amounts of value, right? In terms of property uplift in, in the area, it's been extraordinary. In fact, I think we did some calculations that you could have paid for the High Line if you just took 10% of the uplift value, you would have paid for the High Line in 10 months, right? So the reality is the High Line has generated a huge amount of social value. Yet, actually, that social value is largely uncaptured. And what you start, what you end up with is a reality that social goods leak social value huge amounts of social value, which is entirely privatized. Now, why I bring that to the table is that most of the things we end up designing and making were operating in these kind of invisible problems that everyone talks about how wonderful a great school is, but the reality is a great school, maybe, I don't know if New York, but a neighborhood school adds maybe seventy dollars to $100,000 on a price of local house, an outstanding neighborhood school. So, what you find is that these social goods create private value. So if you want to reimagine how we make our civic society, you have to start to reimagine the contract between social value and social institutions and the land mechanisms around it. So as we went through this journey, we started to realize that the underlying infrastructure, and here I'll go a little bit philosophical, but the underlying infrastructure of how we see the world was based on single point transactions. So we understand transactional high line, you pay for the high line, that's it. If you don't get the money back from directly from the high line, you ignore it. And that's largely about how we've understood historically the world through what I would call one-to-one contracts, transaction value contracts. And what we're moving into a world of is interdependence, a world of complexity and interdependence where value is not so linear, where social value spills over. And the real magic is that we now have the contracting infrastructure through, uh, let's say, machined contracts, machine-capable contracting, to be able to reimagine how we reconstruct that value. And when you can do that, you start to change what I would say is the business models of the future. And if I was to be paradigmatic about it, I'd say, historically, our economy was about private contracting, you, me, contracting. Because the efficiency, the cost of the bureaucracy of you and me contracting was actually what we were going to limit. Contracting 100 people would involve too many legal interactions and the cost would make it virtually impossible. Now, increasingly, we're able to do contracting at many to many level. That means that what we're moving from is a private economy to a civic economy. And that is changing the nature of how we construct value. So if you see the arc of us, whether it's building hubs and building, you know, part of building social investment vehicles or whether it's building open source furniture companies. It was always about starting to think about value formation. And then dark matter was a kind of a real decision in 2014-15 to say, actually, we really need to focus on how we design those institutional infrastructures and reimagine them. It's the boring stuff. This is stuff we don't care about. But unless you redesign them fit for an age of interdependence, I don't think we can get to the value that we're talking about. As you were explaining how all of this is connected, it's it's interesting that you used so many words and concepts that continuously come up in my work, this idea around invisibility. You know, there being not everything that we can see are the things that that really matter. So we're we're having a lot of conversations around tangible versus intangible. You know, how do you start to attach um, measurement and value to those things like those those ethereal 
sorts of relationships. I use the word magic. You just used it as well. How do you uncover those things? Do you, do you find that in, in these processes of working on these kind of projects that you have to not so much teach people the meaning of these terms, but sort of maybe have a re-education about how you're assessing value, how you're assessing tangibility, intangibility. Do you think that's part of this kind of taking these concepts forward? Uh, Totally. I mean, I I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. So the reality is that, so I, I would say two things. One is that we think of value through tangible things and tangible assets has been the historic mechanism of valuation. So you kind of go, my computer a secondhand is worth 2000 whatever dollars. My table is worth $200 because you can trade it. But how valuable is your personal network? Is it tradable? No. Is it transferable? No. Is it a sunk cost? Yes. But does it generate huge amounts of value? Definitely. So what we underprice is these intangibles in our system. And this is an accountancy problem. It's about understanding how we account for value. And I think this is a real structural issue, that we are increasingly moving into an economy of interdependency and intangibles. And our accountancy system is still focused on discrete and particular definable value and discrete and particular objects. So we're moving from one paradigm to another, yet our underlying value, uh, so people often talk about values, our mechanism of, of structuring our values is accounting, right, is actually outdated. It's built on a siloed world for siloed models of thinking and for discrete models of thinking. And this is, this is you know, whilst you could talk about this philosophically, you could talk about it really accounting in accounting terms, actually our ability to price intangibles is really weak, right? It's really weak. And it's very difficult to get financing on the intangible value. So it's really interesting that we don't have the institutional infrastructures to reimagine an economy where interdependence and intangible value is actually being actually invested in. Where if you go to a venture capitalist, they know, you know, the tech platform alone is worth next to nothing. The tech platform is not the issue. It's your ability to create the market on the tech platform, which is where you sunk sink billions. It's your ability to buy the market. The market is those relationships. It's an intangible value. The kind of technology platform in itself is not the real cost. It's the use case. So there's a really interesting question here about, and, and whilst venture capital has understood that, and they you know value it through lots of different ways. They can look at sort of uh, discounting, sort of discount rates and other things they can cash flow discounting to value to those things. The rest of the economy in terms of corporate economy or other forms of debt economies is not. So what we've got is a paradigm problem and the civic economy certainly doesn't, public assets certainly don't, which means that we've got a discrepancy between the technology companies and the venture capitalists who've understood a new accounting thesis and the rest of society which hasn't and is under-deploying capital. And I would say the same applies to the state. So how much is the health of a nation worth? How much is the education of a nation worth, an educated nation? How much is the psychological health of a nation worth in terms of the economic development of a civilization? So because we don't price these things and we don't give a value to them, they're underinvested in and they become costs rather than investments to unlock our collective value. So I think you're absolutely nailed it in that thesis that there is a real structural issue in terms of how we budget and how we account. And unless we make those rules and norms reflective of the world we live in, we've got a fundamental discrepancy right now. And that discrepancy is largely being, uh, let's say, arbitraged by our venture capital world because they've understood that that is where value is. Yeah, it's the financialization of everything that we do in our lives. And sometimes that happens on a very personal level. For example, you'll see, you know, in the culture undertones, there's this idea of, you know, hustle culture and people, something that you might do as a hobby, people will ask you, oh, when are you going to monetize that, right? This intangible thing that you might just find pleasure from has to be tangibly made into a 
market type of transaction, you know? So that's a, a very micro example. But then when you take this to the higher levels of sort of macro economics and, and the accounting, um, where we've spent a little bit of time in this conversation, what I often think about is, you know, things like property, other types of assets, um, revenue models are all very tangibly assessed, but the cost basis to even get to some of those intangible items isn't really accounted for at all in the sense that the cost that it takes to extract minerals and natural resources doesn't really truly reflect the market price, right? Because if if it did, these things would stay in the ground. Exactly. And I think this works at so many levels. So you're really hitting proper important questions. So one is the hustle culture. Let's talk about hustle culture for a moment. Hustle culture is also a function of if you make people precarious, if you design them that they've got to get their rent out every every month, if you make them financially in debt, right? So if you make people precarious because that's how you operationalize the economic system, you optimize a hustle. You basically force people to hustle, right? It's it's go down, but you know, that's what it is, right? And the problem is that they do that because they make us stands because what that does is optimizes us for short-term returns. A hustle is short-term. And what it stops us doing is looking hard or deep. So what we've created is a society which is constantly for focusing on short-term value when the rent-seeking is all in land. So if you look at you know the UK's net wealth, you'll find, and we've got a chart which uh, I'm happy to share, but then you can look it up as well, most of the UK's net wealth over the last 30 years that's grown has not grown in financial services or other things. It's grown in land, nearly five times. So what you find is that what we're creating is in a society, in a land economy, which is actually about making people rent-seeking from us to make us more precarious, to optimize micro-hustles. And if we want deep innovation and we want deep transference in society, we actually have to build different types of cities and different types of places which aren't focusing on us to hustle all the time, but actually give us the space to think and be. That's a completely different theory of innovation. So our theory of innovation is short-term hustle-orientated, whereas actually complex, rich innovation is a function now of either inherited wealth or actually it's largely inherited wealth, frankly. So we're privileging that asset development in the hands of the few inherently. And I think this is something we have to be really cognizant about because I think you're right to say, so the hustle thesis, we've glorified it as a positive thing and I can get it, but it's also actually, it's actually deeply regressive because we know, for example, you put people under financial psychological stress, actually all of our IQ drops by 13 points, right? 13 points, you know, 40 million people right now in the U.S. have been made unemployed. 11% of households where both partners are have don't have jobs. 11% now. The amount of economic psychological pressure that's going to put, if you look at the suicide rates that are going on, if you look at domestic violence, it's going off the charts because we've created this very precarious society. And in precarious society, fear is your mechanism of organizing. So, I think these are things that we have to see together. And too often we ignore them. We have a macroeconomic theory, which is about agile labor markets. We need agile labor markets to optimize value. But actually what ag- agility does, it doesn't nec- it deserves the hustle. What it doesn't create is the deep innovation capacity, which requires trust. So I think we've optimized our economy for a very particular thesis and optimized our society for a very particular thesis. And that fragility is now coming home. Yeah. It's an operating mythology in a way. And we see these stories throughout history all the time. And I'll use American examples because yeah. that's, that's where I, I am. And that's kind of the history I know. But you see whether it's the mythology of manifest destiny, right? Like, you know, that's not told through this eyes of removing, murdering, and pillaging indigenous land and people. But that manifest destiny concept 
it's very much part of the American operating mythos of settler colonialism, but the vi- they removed the violence in the mythology. And I think that same idea is permeates our, our business wow. culture. It becomes this idea of, you know, taking over new markets. And when I see people talk about disruption, that idea of disruption to me is very much tied to colonial settler violence. You know, it's just economic in a particular way of thinking. And I don't want to editorialize too much because I want to get your perspective on these things. But, you know, you often talk about like a social contract that's come up a lot, like kind of walk me through a, a little bit of how we can start to develop a social contract that moves away from these mythologies of violence, really, economic, psychological, and social violence into something that is better. I think about justice in that frame, but I want to hear, you know, what are some of the ideas you're yeah. wrestling when you when you think about I, those I things? I think, Phil, that, again, I think that's a really critical bunch of conversations. So I think it's worth firstly recognizing, and it's, I think you were alluding to, in a way, most of our instruments that we use, in fact, even the private limited company, the private limited company, the design of the private limited company came from, was inspired, if you want to use that word in a quote unquote, from slaves, slave trading, right? That's where it came from, where it was a way where, I think it was in Philadelphia, actually, even, where actually owners of slaves would effectively have someone else own the plantation. So the liability would be owned by a slave and they would just extract the profits. And this was a construct of creating a shield for the owners. So if something went wrong, they couldn't be blamed in law, but actually the the, the person they owned, but they could extract the profits. So a lot of our construct in law have been constructed off exactly this thesis. And I would go slightly further than colonialism. I think it comes from a thesis of enslavement. Ownership is a thesis of enslavement rather than it is beyond that. So I think there's something much more, I, I think you're right to say that there's something deep coded in the way we see the world. This is deeply challenging for the kind of mythos that I think is at the center of kind of American thesis right now. But let's say is if you own a piece of land, are you enslaving that piece of land for yourself? Right. Let's use these words for a moment. They're tough words to use, mm. but in effect, yeah. that's what it is. Ownership is and the sole propriety nature of it means that actually you create a type of relationship which is deeply violent, yet we make it common parlance, we normalize it, right? And I think we're nowhere close to the transcendence of actually, and I think with, this is the, if you talk to me hard about this, I would say our relationship with nature is, is a relationship of ownership and resources. This is a relationship of violence. It's a relationship of enslavement. Our relationship with things is a relationship of ownership, not cohabitation, not not participation. Our relationship with the future is a relationship of colonization and ownership and enslavement. I think these fundamental things are so structured, and our relationship with each other, in many ways, an employment management thesis is all a thesis of control. Efficiency. And control, right? (laughs) They're they're, they're architectures of control. So what we see is our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with with nature, our relationship with the future, and our relationship with things have all been structured through a thesis of control and quasi-enslavement, whether officially or unofficially, of that thing to the optimization of the single person. And I think that is the paradigm that we need to break and we're at the cusp of breaking. Because if we don't break it, you know, I would argue if we don't break these generator functions of the risks that we're holding, these are the generator, these false mythologies, and they're, they're not, maybe let's put it another way, they're mythologies of a different age, which are persisting into our age. Yes. They are generating risks, high levels of inequality, uh, massively high levels of inequality, destruction of our natural ecosystems, destruction of our future possibilities, all these things, our organizational inefficiencies no longer coming through, 
what we're seeding, these things are generating risks that we're no longer able to deal with. So unless we deal with these generator functions and we reimagine these almost structural relationships of what it means to be human, I don't think we can deal with what we are facing. So I think you're right and that, you know, I think the thesis of decolonization has to be married into every one of these dimensions and then reimagine ourselves in that relationship. And this goes back to a fundamental point that I think that we, and this is a paradigm problem. So, you know, some would say China and Singapore and other places have done better in this crisis that we face than places like UK, US, and they have. And the question is why? And this is where it gets interesting in some ways, that in the West, the thesis has been around individualism. In places like Singapore and South Korea, and society is predominant. So the social group is the predominant agent of sovereignty, not the individual, right? the, social, the, the persistence of the social group. Now, some would say that's a better model. I would say both are problematic because both are mm -hmm. conceived around the object. In Western thesis, it's the individual as the object and hyper-individualization. In Eastern societies, the object is society. And the problem is that both are problematic because they're both object-oriented thinking. They aren't talking about our interdependence. And the transition moment is not from going for us to be like China or China to be like us. It's actually something else, which is actually us recognizing our mutual vulnerabilities and mutual interdependencies, which is foundationally a different state of organizing. And I think that is, I think, the paradigm leap that we're facing. And it's a, it's a really structural issue because all of our societal views and language, so English, for example, 80% of the, I think it's something between 70-80% of the words in English are nouns, object-oriented thinking. If you go to words in indigenous languages, it's almost the other way. 70% of words are verbs. So our language is constructing a particular worldview, and it's becoming a self-reinforcing feedback to see the world through objects. And by implication, we see ourselves as objects. And this is actually what I mean by a deep unwinding that needs to occur to allow us to be able to be conscious of the science. That's the other thing. Science is way ahead of us in all of this stuff. So if you look at the definition, you know, the reality is there's millions of organisms by weight and inside us that are not even human that we are symbiotically living with. We are a multitude of organisms with a shared kind of spectrum of consciousness, right? And our physical boundary is not our physical boundary because we're environmentally epigenetically linked to context. So the idea that you can define us well, you can define a moment of us, but the rest of us is contingent to its context, both at, at a genetic level. So the thesis becomes is problematic is that we have the science is already there, yet our cultural and our institutional referencing of that reality is missing. Yeah, and and we create another one of those mythologies as man, and I use man not in a gendered way, but in a way most people would read text from back in the day where they refer to, you know, man as a clock was a exactly. very popular idea, right? Man, and then that became man as a machine of some type, like a computer, you know, now we use those examples all the time. Our brains are downloading information. And, you know, I kind of scoff at these terms because we as human beings, as you said, biologically are so much more than these examples kind of initiate us but yet we're building technological futures against trying to get closer to a machine-like way of thinking and being. So there's, it's very much connected to that way in which we structure language, right? The language informs how we move forward culturally. And, you know, I want to go back a, a little bit when you were talking about these paradigm shifts, because I jumped ahead a little bit because... That interdependence that you talk about, that you stress so much, and we need to create a story around that. I think about the structural impediments to that type of work because we are still so so layered in these old ways of thinking. Like with friends that I've worked with and other creatives, I call it like creative serfdom, right? That we're so stressed by the system, you know, all of us in our own silos 
I'm looking for a project. This person's looking for a project. We can't even collaborate effectively because we're all chasing, right? We're all sort of on this wheel, so to speak. So it's a, a lot in there, but I, I think there's some connective tissue to kind of unpacking how to get interdependent even and, and break these paradigms, even in the face of these cultural mythologies, language barriers, story barriers that have been so prevalent over these past centuries, these industrial age stories. And in a way, we've created both language, but also settings, right? So our settings are optimized to make us individuals, hyper-individualistic. Our settings are optimized to make us financially precarious, as I mentioned previously. Our settings are optimized for us to have debt, so we have to maintain on that hamster wheel so us uh, you know our settings are optimized for us to do i think one of the in a way i would say there is a reason why we do lots of sort of crap work there's lots of crap work around and the reason is because actually in the act of doing crap work we have to psychologically fulfill ourselves through consumption so it's an offset you know in a way we've we've got a mal consumer economy we don't have a consumer economy we have a bad consumption economy because we don't consume to make ourselves healthier better wealthier or even innovative we consume to fix psychological holes left out of an economy which is about abuse so we have an economy of abuse which we then psychologically fix or try to fix with a mal consumer economy and this is a vicious system that we're sitting in the middle of now and i think we've over time let ourselves get into both language and concepts that actually reduce humans down to agents of labor and agents of process employment contracts which are invitations of control rather than invitations to liber- be liberated whereas you know the more extraordinary than you know any digital supercomputer that IBM can build is a human being. Because by far, we know that a human being is light years away in terms of actually general artificial intelligence to what any any supercomputer can do, right? But the reality is we'd be very happy to keep human beings doing deeply menial tasks, yet we're not willing to invest in upgrading the capacity, unleashing the full capacity of what it means to be human. And that, I think, is a paradigm leap in the conversation of being human. And I think we have to start to imagine differently. And you're right to say the thesis of imagining humans as clockworks and magic humans as machines. And these are, I think how we imagine machines in the future will be pretty much like how we see Victorian surgical tools. <laughs> you know, we see them as like, oh my God, what the hell were they doing? Cutting holes in people's heads, Yeah, right? right? I think there's almost that scale of paradigm problem that we're seeing where our conceptual frames are so outdated, but our also concept of being human and unlocking the value of full capacity of being human is completely missing. But I also think that whether you go to the elite sports economies or whether you go to the hedge funds, actually that economies are all showing a pathway into the future. We just haven't democratized it. So, so, Mm -hmm you know, psychological health and counseling for the top athletes, you've got huge amount of investment in human capital, but narrowed to the hands of the few. The question is, what would happen if we were to unlock the full capacity of every human, and also not instrumentalized? Because instrumentalization of humans means that you reduce the innovation capacity to the hands of the few. Right. So what does a society which genuinely unlocks and liberates people look like? And what's the full capacity? I think that's the extraordinary vision that's got to be at the end of the story. And I think those are going to be the challenges that we're going to face over the next few years, is what is the social contract to reimagine what does society look like? And let's touch on universal basic income, because I think it is a key part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think too often people think of universal basic income as a mechanism to allow people to live. It's a welfare. And spend. spend. And I don't think it's welfare (laughs) or spend. I think it's actually the basis of democratizing innovation capacity. It's actually building the largest liberation of capacity, of human capacity that we could ever imagine. And I think UBI needs to be 
completely matched by huge amount of investment in massive automation to be able to actually destroy as many jobs as possible, as fast as possible. So on one hand, you invest in UBI. On the other hand, you radically undermine what I would call process-orientated jobs, which actually humans should be liberated from. But you also have to link that UBI to human development capacity. You have to reimagine our schools. You have to reimagine our institutions and FE to create and access to allow people, give people the frameworks to develop. So it's a good example is Volk schools in Sweden in the 19th century, which are heralded as the basis of the kind of Scandic revolution. And what they used to do was when you're about between 26 to 30, you would effectively be given six months to go to a retreat where you would learn both a skill with new technology and philosophy. And those six months were a sort of semi-sabbatical, but they were really about helping people build self-authorship. So it wasn't just skill school. It wasn't skill school with the best things. It was skill and philosophy, because the basis was that you cannot construct the future without the ability to think with these new capabilities. And the democratization of the capacity to think as well as the capacity to do, was going to be central. And I think uh, heralded key point, nearly 10% of the population in the 19th century had gone to these schools, right? And mm-hmm. that was the basis, or sorry, late, uh, late, early 20th century. That was the basis of the Scandic revolution because the democratization of that capability lifted us forward. So if we want to really take down, if we want to really re-engineer at a structural level our our social contract, a societal contract, I think we have to think about these things as massive institutional investments, which transform both our institutions, ourselves, as well as our relationship with the future. And I think that's the scale of what we're going to have to do in order to be able to unlock this next thesis. I think that's spot on. And what it does is you've anchored your observation in knowing or realizing that many levers have to be pulled at the same time. It's it's not just saying, okay, let's pump UBI, for example, into the societal conversation without also doing any number of other activities, i.e. create a stronger social safety net, make better inroads in, in education, and sort of make fertile ground. Nothing can grow out of, you know, fallow ground that's incapable of, of really producing you know, good crops, right? And I wonder, you know, you're in the UK, you went through Brexit. I'm here in in the US dealing with, you know, authoritarianism under the current regime. And though I, I feel like this has been a steady decline, I don't view America's current situation as just starting in 2016. It's been something decades in the in the works, my editorial. But nonetheless, I'm curious about both of those situations, Brexit and the U.S., different, but with some similarity. And, and I think you can see this globally in different parts of the world. You know, authoritarianism is on the rise. Right wing kind of radicalism is on the rise. And I bring that up because I feel that some of the that interconnectedness that you describe that would raise I think the standard of living and the standard of actualization as a society is often resisted by so many people that it could potentially benefit. So I'm curious about how that mythology that we talked about actually impacts people's willingness to have a more interdependent perspective. You know, I've I've seen reports, at least here in the U.S., where you know, it's not enough that people want to do better. They also want to see other people do worse. And that worse is, you know, Black people, Latinos, Asian, Asians and South Asian Americans, you know, immigrants. You know, I don't, I need to maintain hierarchy in order to be better off. And I can't do that if all boats rise, you know? So I'm, I'm curious about if that, if you have thought about that or see that potentially as an impediment to a more interconnected society. I think, think, Phil, again, a really important point, and I I think your your editorial gives it very important color. So I would say that I would agree with you. This is not something that's happened just by magic. You know, one day it all happened. I think this has been a long time in the making. And the long time in the making is, I think, in the construction of, Whilst the 
and I'm going to use these slightly terms, but I think they're important. But whilst the left was kind of congratulating itself, I think the right was very successfully re-engineering language, uh, the language of control and the language of economics in a very particular way. And over a period, words like agile labor markets, words around sort of getting people back to work, all these sort of language that we've got. And I think when you look at all this language, it has a mythos that sits at the center of it, that fundamentally people are lazy, fundamentally people don't want to work, fundamentally people need to be told what they need to do. The word freedom has been massively captured by the right as a freedom to escape rather than a freedom to care. So what we've seen is a distortion of language, a constructed distortion of what I would call is the conceptual structural language of society over a period of time. And, you know, what that's created is um, also a systematic dependency. So I would say the kind of growth of debt culture has meant that actually we become much more dependent on the system we become more pliable to the system, and we become more precarious. And that was all about creating agile labor markets, more, you know, more instrumentalized capabilities, so you could instrumentalize people easier and more efficient ways. So I think there has been a structural play of miscoding that language, which is allowing this reality to emerge. And I think we're living the fruits of those, what I would call that reconceptualization of that language that has been going over a period. Now, if we look forward, and I think this is where it gets interesting, we did a really interesting experiment where we uh, ourselves and actually Impact Hub Birmingham, and we did a we invited it was so I was part of the team, and we got lots of people together to talk about universal basic income. Now, we took the vote early on, right? There was a people literally from the street. And as you might guess, 70% of people said, no, we don't think it's a good idea. 70% of people said no. It was a whole day event, and they stayed there. They was, it was a deliberative event where they ended up talking, researching themselves, examples, working together in pairs. At the end of the day, we had another vote. And that vote was 70% pro. Now, mm. I don't think this was about content, I think lots of people can say, you know, good content, persuasive argument. No, I think it was entirely that we'd short-circuited the psychological distance with the other. So the people that they thought looking around in the room and going, you're going to be lazy and not do anything, that thesis was destroyed. And Mm -hmm. in the destruction of that thesis, in the destruction of that individualistic, hyper-isolated worldview, to a worldview which actually became about, well, actually, they're not. Those people that I think aren't going to behave like that aren't going to behave like that. The whole mental model shifted. Now, I'll put it, put it another way. I also did that same thing with a bunch of, I think it was Oxford graduates, or actually first-year Oxford students, Oxford University students. And um, surprisingly, they turned around and put their hands up, and it was like 80 to 90% thought it was a terrible idea. I was like, oh, wow. This is a 21-year-old saying it's a terrible idea. I was like, this is pretty unusual. And I said, all right, so mm-hmm. how many of you have an inheritance? And about 90% of them put their hands up. And I was like, so what do you think the difference is between an inheritance and UBI? It's psychological security, right? And you didn't get lazy because you've obviously got to Oxford because actually you have that inheritance. And it took me that reality because the privilege, the structured privilege that they were somehow magical and the inheritance wasn't issue, wasn't visible was just oblivious to them. So I think these are this is what I mean about these are deep coded personal myths, which actually are then creating. If you imagine these kind of these viruses that go on in our head, that kind of oh that person's going to be lazy, not that person's going to be great. So this kind of bias towards the negative, this bias to privileging ourselves. What that's doing is making all these strategic decisions unviable. Yeah, it's, and it, it, it's funny that you... And, yeah, ahead, sorry, and it's ahead. generated through context. So if you create people, if you create context where people are vulnerable, if you create societies where people are vulnerable to fear, if you create societies, then you create the conditions for none of those things are possible. So the macroeconomic design of where we work and how we work is pre-creating the conditions for that future not to be viable. 
And that, I think, is the kind of, that's what I call the infrastructure, the politics of our institutional infrastructure. Our, po- our institutional infrastructure is predicating a politic, and only very limited politics are possible as a result of that. And I think that's why this requires extraordinary leadership to give people the eyes to see this infrastructure, which is invisible, going back to our key point earlier, it's invisible, it's dark matter stuff. Unless you can see it, and it's an, it's not political infrastructure, not dialogue, dialogical infrastructure, it's about the microbiases and behaviors that it generates in people. And that, I think, is the fundamental reason we're seeing all these issues. When you make people precarious, what do they do? It's very natural for people to make defensive decisions. So we're seeing lots of defensive decisions. And that is a society we've constructed. And it's largely, I don't think it was a design product, but it's a byproduct of the economic thesis we put into play. I don't think there was somebody sitting there designing it, but I think there was somebody, there were people I know, we all know, who were sitting encoding this deep cultural language. And this is a byproduct of that deep cultural language that we're seeing go into play. Absolutely. I I was laughing when you were talking about expectations being wired into this group because I was chatting with a friend yesterday and and I laughed because we were just having a random conversation. But I was like, there's two terms that I don't really want to discuss with people. One is devil's advocate because I'm like, the devil doesn't need any advocates. So why are we why are we using that as a positional point to make likely a shitty argument? And then when people debate, you know, the lesser of two evils, I'm like, why can't we just have the lesser of two goods? Like, I don't want to debate with you on this, like, yeah. ideological ground of assuming things have to be shit. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, 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 but, but, but it's interesting, right? In that conversation, the baseline is literally a baseline, not a top line. So we discuss from the baseline rather than discuss from the top line. And that's exactly the kind of what I'd call language structuring and the language orientation, which constructs very particular limited theses of transformation. So this is where language infrastructures, these things become really critical. And the other thing that's really happened, I think, just to make one final point perhaps on this, is that the underplaying of philosophy, the underplaying of these sort of conversations, which I think has also been a deliberative thing, because these conversations do happen for the super privilege in private. What they've done is culturally destroyed the space for these conversations to happen in public. And I think that, I think, has really undermined our society's capacity to make some of these leaps. And that, I think, is a real issue because I think unless we can rewire that language, rewire the precision, unless we can create the space to think, you know, the just do culture, just do it, in a way, I think exactly the problem. You know, I think think in a weird way, it's exactly the problem. Because I think that just do it is about the destruction of the capacity to think on the obviousness of the action. And actually, we need to recraft those capabilities to do and think together. And only when those two things are decentralized and distributed for everyone to do and think together, can we genuinely talk about creating democracy, which is a deep democracy of this ability for all of society to create all of society together. Yeah, I mean, of course, you've perfectly synthesized a lot of the heavy labor. You know, this is emotional work, it's psychological work, it's philosophical work, uh, it's language-based work. It's it's literally why I spend so much time in those spaces, because I'm like, this is where we're going to make meaning. You know, it's we can't make leaps, transformational leaps forward if we can't even agree on the terms that we're using, what they mean. You know, innovation is a word thrown around a lot, but innovation, again, looks a certain way. And I want to just jump on this for a second and because I don't want to leave this conversation without talking about your thesis for the boring revolution. You know, because when I, I saw you starting to write about this, it really stuck out to me as a way to connect innovation to a space that is never considered to be important, i.e. the bureaucracy, the sort of legal frameworks, the accounting frameworks, things that we've talked about in this conversation are never seen or very rarely seen as the space where innovation happens. And I thought it was really interesting that you talked about making the leap forward is largely 
connected to or dependent on having this boring revolution. And I don't want to leave this conversation without giving you an opportunity to discuss that idea a little bit. And, and then we'll get into our final segments because I could talk to you forever. So let's do, let's do the boring revolution. No, I piece. think, thank you. So pretty much it's a sort of way, perhaps a useful way of summarizing this conversation, because I think what we start to get to the heart of is whether it's the construction of language or whether it's the construction of contract or whether it's the construction of ownership or whether it's the construction of property deeds or whether it's construction of, I don't know, any of uh, the receipt. Uh, these things are the mechanisms to structure society. These are the micro nodules of how we structure organization and society. And they code not only people and our relationships, but they also code capital. And they code capital, they code people, and they code our instrumentalization. And like I said, with the example of an employment contract, an employment contract does not take account. It takes account of your physical hours, but doesn't take account of your emotional hours. So the reality is a conversation like this induces and requires huge amounts of emotional labor from yourself because you have to put a huge amount of emotional labor in this conversation to actually have this conversation, to create the space for it and the preparation for it. Yet our contracts, our employment contracts, our work contracts are based on hours, time spent, and they don't understand any of these wider issues. So we've still got an, a contracting architecture based on the assumption of the number of, I don't know, bags I'm lifting or the number of wheels I'm turning, as opposed to recognizing that human activity has become fundamentally different. You know, imagine a Starbucks worker and somebody who works at Starbucks every morning saying, hey, good morning. If you say that 10 times with real care, you realize how actually emotionally demanding it is. So it's not the coffee. It's the care. So, it, it, and I, I think what we start to see very quickly is that the structuring of these relationships is encoded in all those things, the employment contracts, the ownership contracts. And if we're going to make a meaningful revolution, we have to start to reimagine those contracts and those relationship structures. And these persist in everything, whether it's ownership, whether it's self-ownership of trees and forests, all the way through to employment contracts, all the way through to rental contracts, these things are going to be reimagined. And the one thing I would say is our current thesis of bureaucracy is largely a function of the Kaiser and German model in 19th century of actually how he constructed in a wartime machine, how he constructed a bureaucracy. And we've largely lived off iterations of that model. Now, when, you, when we class the cultural transformation, the network transformation, the ecological interdependence that we're all exhibiting, as well as the technological revolution, and I would argue that Uber and all these things are bureaucratic innovations. They are innovations of contract. And if you see these things as we are in the middle of a bureaucratic innovation, our mechanism of organizing contracts is what's being transformed, and that is changing every relationship. And I think that's being understood by tech companies in a very particular way. And again, I, I talk about them in a way that they are understanding this new economy through the bureaucratic capacity, through the intangibles capacity, and they're financing it. Yet, And that's creating a disproportionate effect because we're seeing one part of society being able to leverage huge parts of value because other parts of society are not understanding or not being given the tools and not investing to be able to create reciprocal models of value across that. So I think the bureaucratic revolution is actually at the foundation of dealing with our relationship with ourselves, which is not a quasi thesis of ownership or control, our relationship with the environment and ecological, our relationship with the future and our relationship with things. And these are all going to get disrupted. And that is going to be done through the kind of mechanisms of bureaucracy, because our mechanisms of bureaucracy are all designed for control. And I think our mechanisms of bureaucracy have to be designed for ennoblement. How do we make humans more noble? And not a thesis of control, but inviting us to be more noble. And that is a completely different thesis, which is about human development first orientated rather than control orientation. That's it. Perfect. Perfect. I appreciate this conversation. I want to get us to our, our final two segments. The first one off the dome. The last one is the drop. 
So off the dome is just me shooting a couple of quick questions for you. And I'm only going to ask a couple just in interest of time because I want to get to the drop. We're all kind of dealing with various stages of lockdown, post-lockdown due to COVID-19 and pandemic. What has been your go-to Zoom or phone call outerwear during COVID-19? <laughs> it's such a good question. My, um, it's been music. I've been listening to some great okay. music. I have to say that the few pleasures I have is being able to actually just listen to music. And and that's one of the things. And I'm some some absolutely wicked tracks that are coming out there right now. So I'm really loving listening to music. That's my go-to place right now. I think there's lots of conversations out in the world going on. But I think right now, that's I, I have to say, I've been super overexposed. So music has been my big thing right now. Okay. And my other question is going to be, as you, maybe London might be, I think they're a little further along in terms of closing out the lockdown than we are here in New York. But nonetheless, what is the first place you're looking forward to visiting once things are more safe and secure? I'm looking forward to a great cappuccino, I have to say. (laughs) This has been my number one uh, fantastic world-class cappuccino. That would make my day. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So I want to give us time for the drop. And the the drop is just a a recommendation. I call them intellectual morsels, which sounds more weighty and serious than, than it needs to be. But it's an opportunity for us to share something with our listeners that they should check out take a take a read at, take a listen to, whatever. So I'll go with my drop first. Um, it's just a book. And it was actually inspired by this conversation as I was preparing for it. I thought about the work of economist Mariana Mazzucuto with her book, in her 2013 book. She's prolific. Anything she's written, you can't go wrong. But the book that I come back to a lot is called The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public Versus Private Sector Myths because I think it's a book that's so important about walking through where bets are made and how you can distribute, where wealth distribution really happens, where resource allocation really happens. It's not this private myth of the solo plucky entrepreneur, the way people think. So as I was thinking about this conversation, that book, I kind of anchored on that book. So I think that's an interesting one for our listeners to kind of check out if they get an opportunity. And again, it's um, Mariana Mazzucato. Um, It's called The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public Versus Private Sector Myths. And it was published 2013, I believe. Oh, she's fantastic. Mariana is a lovely person as well and super, super impressive thinker. All right, I'll, uh, I'm going to be slightly counterintuitive. So I'm going to, so what I have been doing, and I think it's, is that too many of the people that I think, you know, too many of us end up reading in our bubbles. And I think it's really important that we read the other side with care. So, um, because I think the other side is not stupid. In fact, I think it's very clever. Um, and it's really important that we listen to what is being said. So I, my recommendations to this, this, the drop here are weirdly, and I don't agree with them for lots of minor reasons and lots of major reasons, but I think it's really important for us to listen to people like Peter Thiel. Completely mm. counterintuitive thesis, right? You know, from everything I've said. But I think it's really important we listen deeply. We listen to people that are perhaps operating out of rebel wisdom that we wouldn't traditionally listen to. Because I think there is, there are aspects, there are lenses that they bring on the problem that are really important for us to challenge ourselves with. And, and, mm. and they will make us stronger, they will make us better, and they will make the coherency of our argument better. So I would say there is a whole bunch of community that sits not in the space that we talked about, but sits on that, you know, whatever, you know, if we call it alt-right, that thesis. I think it's important we we listen to them. And I also, not listen to them, we read them. We hear what they're thinking. Mm. And I don't think it's about following them. I think it's about listening to them and hearing them. And why I think that's important is I do think there's a deficit of structural thinking right now on the left. So, you know, if I was to be really plainly biased, 
straightforward. Um, but what do I see? I think the alt-right narratives and philosophy are stronger than mostly what I'd call progressive left discussions because they do not, the progressive left are ignoring the many risks and issues that people viscerally feel. And unless we build narratives that are able, narratives and strategies and comprehensions which accommodate that, we will forever be on the losing side of this debate. And I think, so my drop is to be counterintuitive, is to deeply listen to the other side because I think there's stuff that we can learn and the only way forward is actually to listen. I don't agree with it, and I'll say that again. But I think it's really important we listen and move forward. That's awesome. I agree with that. I think you have to understand where these folks live because a lot of things that bubble up in the surface years later come up from those spaces. I remember years ago, and sorry to add another little quick point. I think that's an amazing drop, but I was reading like a lot of integral yeah. theory and I watched that world shift to a, what I would consider a more right-wing alt-right world. And it didn't start there, but I, I'm very curious about how movements get co-opted. Even our the Silicon Valley world, it's kind of started in this more cyber utopian space, right? And then became more libertarian. So anyway, I'm not going to launch this into another conversation, but I 100% wholeheartedly agree with that drop. And this has been a great talk. I'm really glad we were able to pull it together. And I want to thank you for taking the time and being on the deep dive. It's an honor and a pleasure. And thank you for reaching out. Really has been a pleasure to sit here and talk to you because I've learned so much myself. Thank you, brother. You look after yourself, brother. It's been a pleasure having Indy Johar join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungFit. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.